Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for listening to The Gist. If you want to check out an ad-free version and bonus content, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. It is the best way to directly support our endeavors. Hi, it's Mike. It's Saturday. This is a show. Therefore, it's the Saturday show. I've done the math for you, but we we don't speak of math today. We speak of humanity, humanism. And there is no higher and more exalted plane that humans can demonstrate their humanity than our treatment of our animal friends, or as is often the case, our dinner plate occupants. Because two weeks ago, there was a horrible fire in Texas in which 18,000 or so cows, bovines, lost their lives. In the wake of that, there were many reports citing statistics about how frequent barn fires are in America. And that was the focus of a spiel earlier this week. So many, many animal deaths. Oh, wait, it's almost all chickens. But don't say that. Put up a graph. Talk about millions of animals dead. We evoke the four-legged kind, but in fact, it is the two-legged, babiked kind. We don't speak of chickens as babiked enough. And not that there's nothing sad about a dead chicken, but there's not that much sad about a dead chicken to most of us. Some of us are vegetarians. I'm not even a pescatarian. You know, if you told me that I would have to slaughter a chicken every time I ate a chicken, I'd say that doesn't make sense. Each chicken yields seven to ten pounds. I should have to slaughter a chicken every time I eat about, I don't know, seven servings of chicken. If I'm eating a pound each, that's a lot of chicken. Anyway, I digress. And I also digest cows and chickens. I hope you enjoy the spiel. I've paired this with a talk that I conducted in late 2016. I think it was the uh, first show back in 2017. So this was after Donald Trump had been elected and before Donald Trump was president. But it doesn't really turn to Trump, my talk with Ralph Nader. Ralph Nader had written a book about another one of his causes. He's a fascinating guy, Ralph Nader. And one of his causes is animal rights. He wrote this book called Animal Envy. And it was just an interesting talk with the then 82-year-old author and advocate. I hope you enjoy that, as I hope you enjoy my spiel from just a couple days ago. Ralph Nader, well, he's a man who doesn't need an intro. If he does, I would say such things as he was named by The Atlantic as one of the hundred most influential figures in American history. Certainly holds that position in my family because my mother once owned a Corvair, the car that was unsafe at any speed. Animal Envy is his new book. It is uh, called A Fable in which all the animals are given the ability to talk and they hold sort of a rolling press conference for the humans. Ralph Nader joins me now. Hello, Ralph. Hi, Mike. So this is 
This is fiction, and I think it's sort of your second work of fiction because you did that book of about the billionaires saving us all. That was a what-if type book, right? Yeah, the only the super rich can save us in quotes. Yeah, we need to talk about what if. We don't talk about what if. We don't kick in our idealism and envision real possibilities. So I, like millions of people, and maybe you too, Mike, have wondered what would animals say to us if they could communicate to us? in our language. So in this fable, Animal Envy, a human genius invents a communication application so that the animals, not just mammals, reptiles, birds, uh, insects, fish, could speak to humans. Uh, I was really inspired writing this book because when I was a youngster, I I realized I I just couldn't destroy any animals. And I, I had a chance to end the life of a rabbit that was eating our gardens day after day. And I ran after it and caught it, uh, caught up with it with a big slab of granite. And Uh it just froze and it looked at me. And I just couldn't uh, throw that rock at that rabbit. And it was that time I knew that I I really had to fight for animal well-being. Are you vegan? Almost. I eat fish. Why? So by the way, that means you're a pescatarian, so I congratulate you on that. (laughs) That's a nice wordplay, Mike. (laughs) Yeah, I I think it's good for you. Uh, Good oils, good uh, protein, and uh, I certainly don't eat aquaculture nurtured fish. But eggs? What about eggs? Yeah, I eat eggs. Okay, so this is maybe a question or a phrase that hasn't been uttered uh, in the history of mankind, but Ralph Nader, let's talk about bestiality. Uh, You have a pig, a German pig in the book, who is against it, essentially framing the idea of zoophilia, a phrase that she herself objects to, as a form of rape. And then a celebrity animal, the racehorse Rachel Alexandra, who uh, won the Preakness Stake, she's a filly, she comes out, she wants to be able to marry her groom. Um, Do you present, do you have a thought on this and did you present it as a debate for a reason? Yes, because it's called multi-species. There's actually a movement in Germany uh, that believes that there should be a marriage between human beings and certain animals, that love between uh, human beings and animals should be recognized. Now, the, the German parliament was so concerned about this, uh, they had a hearing on it, uh, and they moved to further prohibit it. There's a uh, a group, an association in Germany, and it's beginning to spread around the world uh, of multi-species. It was said, look, a, a love between an animal and a human doesn't mean intercourse. Uh, it doesn't have to mean intercourse. And so this is a debate, I think, uh, that's coming, actually, uh, Mike. Uh, it's certainly being talked about and in the press. Anyway, the, the point is not to recommend any uh, issue here. It's just to get people thinking about the extraordinarily complex relations that are developing. We know it's psychological relations. There are service dogs. I mean, now you can go to jail if you uh, abuse your cat or dog, and it would be unheard of 50 or 100 years ago. So we want to take it, push the envelope, and discuss all these issues in this book, Animal Envy. Now, if I know uh, anything about publishing, you have, first of all, you, you've written dozens and dozens of books. You have many ideas. Um, it's not surprising to me that animal rights would be an idea that you'd want to explore. So you 
contract to write this book, not realizing that it would hit essentially when this huge threat to this democracy, Donald Trump, an animal in his own right, comes along. So is there anything about the timing of this that you regret? Well, uh, I thought once the election was over, there'd be this interregnum and, you know, people thought Hillary was going to win. So it's pretty predictable. Uh, No, I mean, this is like running into a, a buzzsaw, you know, What's the press interested in? <laughs> you know, it's the latest outrageous nomination, the latest outrageous tweet by uh, Donald Trump. And uh, get ready. Uh, he's going to crowd out everything that you want to have on the media. Uh, it's going to be about Trump uh, 24-7. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, there's a new cable channel entirely d- devoted to Trump, uh, apart from CNN. Well, it was going to be his own channel until uh, that business plan failed because yeah. he actually won the presidency. Yeah. Let, so, me, let me give you a yeah. little uh, prediction here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you notice uh, on Thursday, December 15th, he was supposed to have a press conference announcing how he's going to dispose of all his business assets. Well, he canceled that. Uh, he canceled it because he still cannot make up his mind that the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution would require him to sell all his business assets um, other than liquid assets like savings accounts or treasury bonds, uh, sell all his fixed assets, his casino interests, his, uh, his, uh, his partnerships, which were not disclosed because he didn't disclose his tax returns, his flamboyant hotels, his condo buildings, that he has to get rid of them, not to his family. And he is now leaking information that that's what he wants to do. He wants to let his children manage uh, the uh, the business empire, and he would not be told about it. And he would not have any deal-making capability. That is clearly not enough for the Emoluments Clause. He's going to get into a huge impeachment-type uh, uh, imbroglio uh, when he starts his first days in the presidency. Well, only if Congress decides to impeach him. This is the problem with the emoluments clause. Who exactly has standing to sue? Of course, if Congress wanted to, they could draw up some sort of bill or charges. But it seems to me that no matter the outrage of the press or the public or the people who are informed on this, this is the sort of issue that, you know, once a few hundred Republicans agree not to pursue it, then it doesn't get pursued. But the media will pursue it every day. Every that day, is true. But for example, if there's an attack on a Trump uh, hotel in Central Asia, uh, if there is an extortion demand with uh, the employees being kidnapped, if uh, oligarchs here and there in Russia uh, start providing more contacts, contracts, buying more condominiums, the press is going to build it up and build it up. And let me tell you, the moment the pl- polls start separating between the Republicans in Congress and Donald Trump, and they're going the wrong way for the Republicans in Congress, it doesn't take that many more to join with the Democrats to start an impeachment hearing in the House Judiciary Committee. So he's not going to get away with it. He's gotten away with almost everything no politician would ever get away with during the primaries and during the presidential election. He's not going to do it in the White House. Two months ago, I'd have definitely agreed with you, but there is there are elements of Trump's victory that do make me question the regular rules of physics, of politics. 
the question, at least in my mind, is raised. Can he circumvent a steady drumbeat of press criticism? Because so far he has. And so I guess your theory is that even if he creates this cult of personality around himself, if it doesn't extend to uh, the Republicans in Congress, he could be in trouble. He'd be in trouble because politicians, when it's their own skin and yeah. they're going to lose in 2018, uh, they're not going to uh, let their own skin lose. <laughs> I mean, uh, they'll turn against uh, anybody who threatens their tenure in Congress. The other thing is this. You know, he has said again and again that if someone criticized him, he's going to slam them 20 times harder. Use yeah. that number. And, but now, you see, once he becomes president, the criticisms become geometric. They become hundredfold more than they were during the election. And he's, how many times is he going to get up in the 3 o'clock and counter and counter and counter? He'll become like uh, uh, Captain Quig or Dr. Strangelove. The thing about the Captain Quig figure is in the Kane mutiny, he does demonstrably go over, steam over, cuts the tow line. There are failures, and the failures catch up with him and reveal his personality. I guess the theory is that if Trump gets an infrastructure bill through and some tax cuts, the economy will start looking better, and this will give him the ballast, I guess there's another naval metaphor, to skate through this. And I'm a little worried that all these things that are so true that you're saying that seem true to me just won't seem true to the majority of people. Uh, six months ago, I wouldn't have thought that. Now I wonder. All right. Let's look at his uh, three-part economic uh, program. Uh, he wants to have a big infrastructure program. He mm -hmm. wants to cut taxes for the rich and for the middle class, by the way, he insists. Uh, and he, uh, he wants to uh, have a stronger military, which means more military budget. You can't do yeah. all three. Impossible. Uh, so, but he can, uh, but he can tap dance for a while until we realize that he can tap dance uh, for a while. But the infrastructure doesn't kick in for at least eighteen months to two years. You know, bridges, highways, etc. Uh, it takes a long time. Uh, number two, the tax cuts are uh, going to be filibustered if they're too extreme. Senator Schumer of New York has already uh, said that. Uh, in the meantime, he'll be seen increasingly as betraying. Uh, the workers who voted for him, because he is against raising the minimum wage. Um, that's 30 million people working today who are making less in inflation-adjusted wages as workers made in 1968. Those are a lot of workers who voted for him. He has nothing to give them. He's not going to revive the coal industry. That's an absurdity. Uh, automation and the shift toward other forms of energy uh, are bringing the coal industry to its knees. He's not going to bring back the steel manufacturing plants. I mean, nobody on Wall Street takes that seriously. That's just campaign talk uh, to flip the Electoral College in places like Pennsylvania and Ohio. So I, I think he's heading for real trouble where his sugarcoating rhetorical expertise and his emotional phrasings uh, are not going to carry him through, especially if the media starts pointing out, okay, you promised this, 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 uh, Donald, uh, where is it? Uh, where is it? Uh, come on. Where is it? Where is it? And so he's not going to be able to get away with that. Um, I want to ask a more global question, if I could take a couple more minutes of your time. So I think that your training as a lawyer, as a uh, smart person, you try to make the best arguments. You put the best arguments forward. And yet I've also been reading a lot of scholarship 
about arguing to a specific set of people. And for instance, to convince conservatives that that there is global warming, you want to emphasize issues of purity and patriotism, right? Rather than just all the facts about global warming. So I'm wondering if uh, over the course of your life, not that you do anything differently, but do you think there is room to make arguments that will strike people in their hearts that maybe aren't the best arguments, but are most effective for moving uh, the policies forward? Or is that kind of a sellout, uh, in your opinion? That's a very insightful question. Obviously, everybody who makes an argument and where the country should be heading or not heading has to appeal to some basic principles. Otherwise, nobody will listen. So even extreme right-wingers have to appeal to freedom, liberty. You notice that. Uh, Mm -hmm. My appeal is to a sense of fair play that I think is imbued in almost all people, whether they're liberals or conservatives. Uh, they don't like bullies. Uh, whether you're liberal or conservative, you don't like an eighth grader beating up a fifth grader or someone pushing an older woman uh, who's trying to cross the street to take some crude examples. The other uh, appeal I make in most of my arguments is to the appeal of the greater good. It can be couched in patriotism. It could be couched in respect for the taxpayer dollar. Yeah. And I will note that um, the Stanford sociologist, Rob Willer, who has done a lot of research on how to persuade a conservative or how to persuade a liberal, you talked about, you know, um, arguing about fairness, that fairness and equality arguments do very, very well among liberals, but among conservatives, just fairness isn't a, a, a huge issue. You know, fairness isn't their fundamental core belief, so it doesn't and, go as far. Well, uh, I disagree. First of all, if you define fairness with a lot of different broad examples, it goes a long way. Fairness is respecting the taxpayer dollar. That certainly reverberates with That's good. conservatives. Fairness uh, certainly deals with when they go shopping, do they want to be ripped off? Do they want to be overcharged? Do they want to be given uh, food that's basically rotten, but you can't see it until you get home? Well, you know what that is. Then you would make the, you're, you're being made a sucker of, and that actually, the fear of humiliation, yeah. that does have a lot of purchase among conservatives. Right. The other definition uh, uh, is health and safety. Is it fair for an insurance company after getting your premiums to arbitrarily deny coverage when you are sick? Um, is it fair for an auto company to sell you a motor vehicle and they knew that there was an ignition switch problem that could lead to a lethal crash or they were uh, emitting noxious nitrogen oxides, uh, the GM and VW crimes uh, of recent reporting? Uh, so I find when I talk to people around the country, uh, Mike, I get standing ovations from people in the South, very conservatives, people in Boston, more liberal. Because I transcend those arbitrary divide and rule abstractions that politicians love to engage in and talk about a polarized society. In my recent book, Unstoppable, the Emerging Left-Right Alliance to Dismantle the Corporate State, I had 24 areas of support if you polled conservatives and liberals, including, by the way, minimum wage comes in at 75%. You can't have 75% unless a lot of conservative workers in Wall Street uh, want their frozen minimum wage to be raised. Those ballot proposals did very well. Yeah, there you are. Despite this Republican. In conservative states, sure. Uh, Even a place like Arkansas in 2014. 
Uh, so we have an, a possibility of turning this country around in a very peaceful and fundamental way uh, by forging left-right alliance, conservative-liberal. They don't like the anti-civil liberty provisions, snooping, etc., in the Patriot Act. Left-right. They want to break up the big banks who are too big to fail. That comes in at 90%. They want law and order applied to corporate crooks. That comes mm-hmm. in very high, too. They don't like corporate welfare. The right wing calls it crony capitalism, uh, taxpayer bailouts of Wall Street and other companies. They don't like this idea where they have to pay taxes, but big companies make uh, billions of profits in the U.S., like General Electric or Verizon, and don't have to pay any income tax. So there, uh, the divide and rule strategy for 2,000 years has been the, the technique of the ruling powers. If we liberals and conservatives band together, we can take this country to where it should be. Well, there he is, uniting liberals in Boston and conservatives in the deep south like a, a kitten on a treadmill or a baby porcupine. I only mention that because Ralph Nader's new book is Animal Envy, a Fable. Excellent to speak with you, Ralph. Mike, it clearly is in the top five intelligent interviews I've ever had in 50 years. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye now. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com and now the spiel a fire killed eighteen thousand cows in texas it's a horrifyingly normal disaster That is a horrifyingly normal headline from the website Vox, but not, in fact, a horrifyingly normal disaster, or else it wouldn't have made news and inspire a somewhat misleading headline in Vox and a lot of other places. After the fire in Dimmit, Texas, which did kill more cows than any fire in U.S. history, it is believed, there was a lot of coverage, and news coverage demands statistics to provide context. The biggest provider of statistics was an advocacy group called AWI, the Animal Welfare Institute. Here's a very typical way their statistics were used in coverage. Quote, in the last 10 years, AWI estimates that nearly 6.5 million animals have died in bonfires. In fact, the Vox article had a prominent chart. It was labeled, at least 6.5 million farmed animals died by fire in the past decade. The true death count is likely far higher, and then they break it down by years, with 2017 and 2020 having more than a million and a half deaths of animals. Six and a half million barn fire deaths. My first thought, how many barns are there in the U.S.? Looked it up. According to Bloomberg, the answer is a little over 600,000. Wait a minute. So 10 animal deaths per barn a year? Are barns burning down all over the country and no one's reporting on these barns? You'd think there'd be at least one Instagram page, the barn fires of Madison County. There'd be a lot of content for it, no? The answer is no. My original question about all these barns having 10 dead animals per. There is not a barn to burn in every county. Barn fire deaths are not evenly distributed. 
American agribusiness is dominated by huge factory farms, which, when these structures house animals, are called barns. Fires break out in these huge facilities sometimes, not horrifyingly normally, because if it were the norm, i.e. if it happens as often as it doesn't, animal agriculture would not be a viable business. But even so, that seemed like a lot to me. Six and a half million animal deaths since 2013. 650,000 animals incinerated a year. This has the flavor of a misleading stat, and I could now report the exact nature of that flavor. It tastes like chicken. The Vox article does say in paragraph four that the deaths are mostly chicken. Eventually, after the graph and a picture of the cattle facility on fire and a horrifying headline or the headline with the word horrifying, Vox reveals that by animal deaths being mostly chicken, they mean 92% chicken. But that is an undercount from the actual stats from the AWI on AWI's own site. They report that, quote, in conjunction with our end-of-year statistics, AWI also released an update to our original report, Barn Fires, a Deadly Threat to Farm Animals, which counted for barn fires from 2018 through 2021. In that count, nearly 98% of the reported deaths were chicken, egg-laying hens accounting for most. Another way to look at this stat is that for the last few years, from 2018 through 2021, 15,000 non-chicken animals have died in barn fires a year. That is sad. That is a little sad. I mean, no one this side of a serial killer or Iowa Senator Joni Ernst finds pleasure in an animal suffering. Not fair to Joni Ernst. She just got elected based on an ad where she castrated a cow. Fine. Well, you don't castrate a cow. You castrate a bull. See, I know my animals. But, you know, like I said, it is sad. 15,000 non-chicken animals animals dying every year. Also sad is the fact that in the last 10 days, 13,000 non-chicken humans have died of COVID, not in fires, but, you know, humans in hospitals, at least as bad as cows in fires, I would say, or goats or alpacas or any of the pigs. Pigs die a lot. The AWA clearly knows that 15,000 non-chicken animals dying is not as sad, won't motivate the public as four-legged animals dying. That's why they don't mention until very late and tucked inside a number of reports that almost all the deaths every year are chicken deaths. This is from the AWI site. Hundreds of thousands of animals perished in barn fires last year. In early January, AWI once again reported on the number of animals killed in barn fires across the United States for the preceding year. In 2021, more than 681,000 farm animals are known to have suffered horrific deaths in these incidents, bringing the total number of farm animals killed via fire in the last two years alone to a staggering 2.3 million. You could click around and find the fact that it's almost all chickens, but they're not going to tell you, unless you really go hunting and pecking for it, that it's almost all chickens. And yeah, I gotta say that it's a little sad that so many chickens died, but really... The AWI knows, and I think you know this, unless you're a dedicated vegetarian, nobody really cares about chickens. It's somewhat sad that chickens have died in a fire before they could be cooked on a fire. We don't expect an outlet like Vox to necessarily tell it to you straight, but this reporting was all over the news, CBS, BBC, even in places like not Vox, but Fox. 
Nearly six and a half million farm animals have died in barn fires since 2013, according to the AWI report. They quote that in 2021 alone, 681,825 farm animals were killed in barn fires. It's so exact when most of these barn fires, when there's chickens dead, just have a round number ending in zero, zero. The report was disseminated on Yahoo. Millions of people saw that Vox reports, but who cares? I mean, vegetarians care. Pescatarians may care, but no non-veg or pesk cares about dead chickens or else those people would not eat chickens. The point is to bury the thing, the fact that no one cares about so that the horrors seem more real than they are to the public, right? Don't talk about the chickens because... The chicken-eating public doesn't care so much about chickens. The general point, and this goes way beyond the AWI, this is uh, a trend of all advocacy organizations and how almost all media deals with them. They pretend or want to give the reader the impression that the animal incineration rate is 50 times higher than it actually is, if you don't count chickens. And I understand why that happens. They're an advocacy organization. They're trying to advocate. But it's just so distressing that there is no pushback or critical thought visited upon this advocacy. Look, I am not going to pretend that the cow deaths made huge national news. I was alerted to it by my producer, Corey, who lives in Oklahoma. So if a lot of cows die in West Texas, he's going to hear about it. Who knows? According to wind patterns, it may have smelled like brisket that day in Tulsa, more so than usual. But what I saw in the coverage is what we so often see. Advocacy group makes a claim. They're not necessarily lying, but of course there's an impression they wish to give, a conclusion they want the public to come to. The media, either on board with them, you know, of a like mind, or just incurious in general, or just wanting some official sounding statistic and ballast to amplify a claim, doesn't bring to bear anything that the media should bring to bear. There is no countervailing force to rebut the advocacy organization. It gets a lot more serious when the stakes are a lot higher than chicken deaths. There are many anti-factory farm activists bemoaning this fire, spreading the alarming AWI, six and a half million dead animals in a barn statistic. And it's not a total lie But when you think about it, it's never going to be pulled back. What's really pressuring anybody to put that supposed fact into context, to correct it, to moderate or modify it? Me? Randomly coming across this claim and saying, huh, that doesn't seem entirely accurate and spending an inordinate amount of my time and your time, and thank you for that indulgence, in a process of talking about burnt up chickens? And then maybe, you know, I did say to myself, you know, maybe I should, as a regular feature on my substack, the Pesca Profundity substack, maybe I should have a feature called Questionable Advocacy Organization Fact of the Day. But really, is there a market for that? People say they want accuracy, but when the inaccuracy is coming from an advocacy group of a cause that generally fits into your worldview, do we really seek out aggressive rebuttals? People want their opponents' claims disproved. People also want their preferred claims generally validated, certainly not overly questioned. If people demanded the scrutiny of all claims, journalism would not look like what journalism looks like today. And this takes a lot of forms. And this is where I talked about it goes way beyond chickens. 
Think about what we talked about the other day, how frequent the murder of black teenagers are by white men in America. Or think about frequent claims that take something that you always hear conservatives say, America pays the highest corporate tax rate in the world. Or think about the claim that trans women are dominating sport. Or think about the claim that the presence of trans women have and will have zero impact on sport. How much we really want our claims to be accurate versus how much we want to just be able to navigate a messed up and ambiguous world where we strongly suspect someone who is entirely unaligned with our interests is benefiting. I think that's what's driving our capacity and our appetite for accuracy, to say nothing of chicken. Given how complicated reality is and given how much reality is fed to us through devices that we carry in our pocket or wear on our wrists or sit in front of every hour of every day, why would most of us invest the time or actual subscription dollars rebutting claims that if not perfectly technically true are at least directionally in line with our values? We wouldn't. We don't. And then ask yourself, oh, and who would be silly enough to spend their time investing their resources or reputations in pursuit of such quote-unquote knowledge? Most of us would not do that. I do it a little bit, but not in every show, not on every outlet, not in every way I can, because I think in many ways I'm like most barn deaths and most people, 98% chicken. And that's it for today's show, the Saturday show. All the shows are produced by Corey Wara and senior produced by Joel Patterson. We'll talk to you on Monday.